We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. The world wars were not normally fought during the winter months because rains and cold weather made travel and war difficult. And so fighting is kind of funny, was scheduled, it would resume, you know, in the springtime. How many of you are starting to enjoy the weather now, the springtime now, and you're starting to get out there a little bit more and do a little uh, yard work, maybe washing the car? You know, for them, it's like, okay, now it's time to get back to war, you know. And they would go out to war in the springtime, right? And so Joab and his men picked it up where they left off. Remember in chapter 10, uh, they had defeated the Ammonites, chasing them back into the city, and so now they return, they defeat him again, and they besiege the city of Rabbah. That means they surround it, right? And, and, and so they are there, but we read those chilling words at the end of verse 1, but, but David remained at Jerusalem. Wait a minute, time out. Verse 1 says that the time when kings go out to battle, and this says, but David remained at Jerusalem. There's no doubt the Holy Spirit seems to emphasize this. You know, it's the time for kings to go out there, but this one stayed home. He took himself out of the battle. You know, maybe he thought it was safer. Little did he know it would be infinitely more dangerous and detrimental to him and his family to choose to relax and kick back at home than it would be if he had chosen to fight on the field. One person said this, while Joab and his men were surrounding Reba, Satan and his demons were surrounding David. And so what happens in verse 2? It happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now literally in the Hebrew language he was walking back and forth. They say the Hebrew language tells us that he was kind of restless up there walking back and forth on his roof. Remember, in those days, the roofs were flat in those cultures. And uh, so David has his roof. Uh, we're going to see Bathsheba has her roof. And as he's there, out of the will of God, restless in his heart, from his roof, he happens to see, he just checks out right over here, a woman bathing. And the woman, it says, was very beautiful to behold. Now, there's a couple of things really wrong at this point. Number one, what was Bathsheba doing? Taking a bath on her roof anyways, right? You know, Manny, her name is Bath. It's Bathsheba. That's what she does, right? Well, in the Hebrew, her name means daughter of an oath. That's the Hebrew name. And she was a married woman vowed in holy wedlock to a man named Uriah who was out in the battlefield. What's she doing taking a bath on her rooftop? You know, we don't know for sure if this was her intention to lure the king or anyone else for that matter. But we do know it was her contribution to this whole thing. And such is the case with many women nowadays. The way some play, the way some flatter, the way they flirt, they think it can't hurt, the way they dress immodestly, irresponsibly. As Alistair Begg said when he covered this text, there is a difference between dressing attractively and dressing seductively. I'm pretty sure women know the difference, and I'm absolutely sure that men do. 
And so Bathsheba has her part. Again, David must assume 100% of the responsibility for his sin. We're going to see that. But, but you know, Bathsheba does her element as well. And, and you ladies, you know, you need to be very careful. You know, here we see Bathsheba took it obviously to a different level. It wasn't, she wasn't, it's not that she was dressing wrong, it's just that she wasn't dressing right at all. There's a big difference there. That's one of the real wrongs we see. Another thing that we see here is not just that David saw. Look again in verse 2. David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of his king's house, and he saw a woman bathing. That, that's probably not the wrong, but the wrong is it says, and the woman was very beautiful to what? Behold her. See, that's where he went wrong. There's nothing you can do about the first look. Nothing you can do. It's the second look where you behold her, where you hold her with your eyes. That's the one that will kill you men. Most men are visual. I think it can happen to girls too. David Guzik said Christians, men especially, must learn to never let their eyes or their mind Rest on alluring images, except for what belongs to them in marriage. Our eyes, I like this, he said, must bounce off those things, those images when they come in our sight. You know, and we have to be so careful. If David were alive today at this season of his life, he probably would have been guilty of, you know, bringing pornography into the monarchy, you know? Because he was not only seeing, he was beholding. You know, they say, you guys, and I, don't, I, I, I really find this difficult to believe, but they say that 70% of all men struggle with pornography. They say that 50% of all pastors do as well. Now, I was reading an article uh, even today. I was just kind of like, was this true, Lord? And, and uh, I read an article, one pastor, he said, this can't be true. So what he did, he said, I'm going to find out, you know, in, in my own church, in the church that I serve at, and he, and he, and he, and he um, interviewed all the men. He, he gave them a, a questionnaire to fill out. And it, it turned out that it was even worse than what he had heard. You know, I, I don't know. You know, if you're here today and you think it's okay to check out a chick as long as you don't touch. If you're here today and thinking that you're surviving even though you're addicted to pornography, or you take second looks. You have to train yourself. You have to love God so much that you would not dare do that. Because Jesus said that when we look in order to lust, we commit adultery in our hearts. Now it's not exactly the same, but it's the same. And that's why, you know, in looking at this right here, we really have to come to that place, you guys, and, and, and girls, where you know, we just we, we guard our eyes. You know, one thing really wrong, Bathsheba up there on the roof bathing. We don't know if it was her intention, but we know it was a contribution. Ladies, learn from that. Please, I beg of you, don't do that to your brothers. Men, learn not to take a second look. Because you think it's okay, but I tell you what, it will destroy your life. Even if it doesn't get this far, it's far enough to ruin you. Sanctify your eyes. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? 
we're going to see as we go through here. It's a, it's a real big problem. You know, maybe you're here today and you're struggling with online pornography. You know, get rid of your get rid of your internet, get rid of your computer. Like Alistair Begg said, it's better to go to heaven without the internet than to go to hell with the internet, right? How the Lord said, pluck out your right eye if you need to. Deal severely with these things. It's not just the monitors or magazines. It's sometimes even in just the minds of men. There might be some of you here today, men or women, who in your heart, you are having an affair with someone. Someone else other than your wife, other than your husband, has captured your heart. And the reason I know this is because Don McClure, he did a study recently sitting down after many years of pastoral ministry and just talking to people, talking to guys, talking to people with marital problems. And what had happened was there was an affair going on in their heart. It never you know, happened literally or physically, but in their minds it was just as real. And that's why if you're living life like that, then you have to weed out that wickedness. There's no roots left. You can't allow any lust to linger. Because we can't behold these things. You really have to come to that place where your eyes just bounce off. We've got to know that God sees. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked, naked, man, and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You think you can get away with it, but you can. Number 3223, it says, be sure, I want you to know this, your sin will find you out. So Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, man, whatever you do, you don't go checking out checks. You don't go checking out guys. You don't allow those lusts to linger because it's just as if you did it. It's not exactly the same, but it's the same. You're like, how does that work? I don't know, but that's what Jesus said. You know, when you look at David, you might wonder, well, he had many wives. Didn't they satisfy him? Well, that's the thing about the flesh. It's never satisfied. The flesh is never satisfied. That's why we can't walk in the flesh. You know, the real challenge in this temptation was not necessarily the beauty of Bathsheba as much as it was the depravity of David. We've got to be so careful, you guys. When you think of David, I think it's even wrong to think that this was the beginning of the chain of events, you know, that then led to his adultery and murder. You know, what we find is that in David's life, he had a disregard for what? Marriage. Marriage. You know, God never condoned polygamy. God meant one man, one woman for life. But David thought, well, it's okay to have multiple wives. Why? Because that's what the culture was doing. David's practice of adding wives showed a lack of romantic restraint and indulgence of his passions. This corrupt seed sown long ago had now grown unchecked for a long time and now it's about to bear its bitter fruit. Let me tell you guys, girls, I'm talking to myself. I thank God that I can read this chapter, but I need to tell you, man, that if there's any any part of any of this in your life, do not allow it to live any longer. Because it'll kill you. How we need to temper our appetites, 
to tame them lest they kill us, or worse, we're going to see in David's life, you know, kill our loved ones. How we need to go against the grain of who we are, we need to fight against the flow of this fallen world. Again, quoting from Alistair Begg, tragically we live in a society where such activity, adultery, is not just tolerated, it's celebrated. And we have to come to what God says. You know, I think it will help us if we don't use their terminology any longer. For example, you know, they call it an affair. We need to call it adultery. They say it's love, but we need to know it's lust. They say it's sex, but we say it's sin. They say it's romantic, we say it's ruin. They say it's destiny, and we say it's destruction. We're going to see David here. Uh, Some amazing things happen. You know, David should have been out to battle, but no, he's kicking it at home. Um, He goes on the rooftop, and there's Bathsheba. And, And so, you know, he checks her out, he beholds her. And so in verse 3, it says, David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Her grandfather was Ahithophel, one of David's chief counselors, one of his you know, right-hand men. His father was Eliam, according to 2 Samuel 23:34. He was one of David's mighty men. That was her father. Think about this. This is someone's daughter that you're messing around with, man. And that was his grandfather, the father, one of your mighty men. And then her husband was Uriah, another one of David's mighty men, according to 2 Samuel 23:39. And so he learned that this woman's husband was away because the mighty men were out there away in battle against the Ammonites. And so you would figure, okay, put on the brakes, right? But David completely ignores God, the laws of God, the hurdles, the warnings, the red flags. And in a sinful state, you know, he might even see what was intended to be the reason not to do this. You know, Uriah's out there fighting for you. I mean, you know, you know him. You know his dad. You know his grandfather. Uriah, her husband, is out there fighting for you. But what does he see when you get into that demented state? Oh, perfect timing. Because I can get away with it now. What would you do if you could get away with it? See, that's the test of who we really are. Alistair Beggy gave an illustration, and I, I allude to him a lot because I've I seen, seen the DVD as he taught on this, and I almost just wanted to show it to you guys, you know. But um, he, uh, he, he, he kind of says, you know, it's kind of like when there's three things that have to intersect. Number one, there has to be the desire. Number two, there has to be opportunity. And then number three, there has to be temptation. Okay, if you're two out of three, you're probably okay. But if all three are there, you're a goner. Okay, you're a goner. Also, he uses the illustration of chocolate ice cream. How many of you here like chocolate ice cream? Any of you here don't like chocolate ice cream? Okay, see, some of you don't. You guys are weird, but you don't, right? (laughs) And so anyways, let's just say, you know, you like chocolate ice cream and, uh, and someone comes up to you one day and they say, hey, you want some chocolate ice cream? And you like it, you have a desire for it, and you're like, yeah, I'll take some chocolate ice cream. And they say, sorry, I don't have any. You're like, well, you want to punch them in the face? You're like, why would you ask me that? But there's not that opportunity, right? But let's just say someone comes up to one of you that raised your hands and say, hey, you want some chocolate ice cream? And you say, I don't want any. I don't have a desire for that. 
then that's the end of that. But when someone has the desire for that, and then they have the opportunity for that, and then they have the temptation or the draw for that, and all three intersect there, that's when you're a goner. You know, we can't control the temptation. We probably can't control the opportunity as much. We can be careful, but you just never know what, what will happen. But the one thing we can control is what? The desire. Lord, my heart belongs to my wife. And that's it. You know, my husband, the one that I'm going to marry one day, that's it. And when that's there, it doesn't matter if those other two things come. You're going to be okay. See, David didn't, he wasn't there. And so now, oh, your, your husband's out fighting the war way over there. Oh, okay. Oh, man, I saw how beautiful she was. I beheld her. Who knows? Maybe they even looked at each other. They locked eyes. I don't know. And so what does he do? He then moves on. What ends up happening? Verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. For he was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. One verse. It's pretty simple, huh? It doesn't say he brought her flowers, you know, and then picked her up in a nice carriage. It doesn't say how her hair blew in the wind, you know, or the way they hit it off and they started talking. No, it just says he took her, he lay with her, and she returned to her house. He took her, he lay with her, and she returned to her house. Boom. And I'm not sure how David felt that night, how he slept that night, but it would be the first of a series of times where he was convinced he'd gotten away with it. It's time to move on. Little did he know. That's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. And so we read in verse 5, And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Those are Bathsheba's only words in the whole thing. I'm pregnant, right? Now this is a pretty embarrassing thing to admit. I mean, you know, we're pregnant. How would this make David look? After all, he's the anointed king of Israel, the psalmist, the man after God's own heart. Everybody thought David was such a godly man. And I think that was his biggest hurdle in this whole thing. There's no way he could beat the thought of people seeing him, just bearing that thought as an adulterer with the wife of one of his best soldiers. And so right away he does what we you know, usually do. We try to cover it up. And he comes up with a, just a, a, a beautiful plan. He thought it was an impeccable plan. And so we read in verse 6, Then David sent to Joab, and he said, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered as if he really cared, right? And, and David said to Uriah, You know, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah departed from the king's house, and the gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. 
And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Wow. Talk about a man of integrity. I mean, how many husbands, after having been out in the battlefield, would pass up the opportunity to go home and, you know, wash their feet, if you know what I mean, right? I mean, with his beautiful wife who'd be waiting for him at home. I mean, how many husbands would do that? Not many. It would have to be a man who what? Who was in love with God. Who was in love with God. Such men with a passion for God, empowered to control their other passions, even the passion for sex. Someone like Joseph. You know, David was 50 years old. And so you might think, well, I'm sure it's over by then. No way, right? Not at all. Joseph was probably 17 years old. Some say maybe in his sexual prime. And one day he's there and Potiphar's wife, she casts longing eyes on him. She says, lie with me. Direct approach. No one will find out. He undoubtedly, you know, was there. And they say he was, you know, a, a good looking guy. And I'm sure he wanted that in his flesh. She undoubtedly was beautiful. There's no way anyone could have found out. What does he do? Man, when she finally, you know, just makes that final plunge, he runs. And, and what does he say? How could I do this wickedness against God? Now, if you're here today and you're looking at porn, you're checking out chicks, some of you here might, you might even be having an affair. How could you do this to God who saved you, who loved you, who washes you? And you're in sexual sin. How? It means that you don't love God. And you need to come to repentance. You need help. You need to be broken. You need to be like this guy right here, Uriah. Learn from him, a beautiful man. You know, some guys might read this and wonder, is it possible for a man to be pure? To love the Lord so much that even the hidden part of his heart is holy? I think so. Even notice what we read next in verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow I will let you depart. In other words, this is like your last chance. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him. And he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. He's just trying to cover his sin. And he figured the guy would have gone home to be with his wife. But he says, no, I can't do that. The Ark of the Covenant is out there. My Lord Joab's out there. All these men are out there. They're, you know, serving the Lord. They're sacrificing themselves as soldiers. I could never do that. Indulge in that. There's a war going on. I'm going to stay pure and passionate for God. And so David says, well, you know, all I got to do is maybe just get him a little drunk. And I'm sure, you know, then he'll come to his senses and some say, because what happened was he got him drunk and then he went out and he guess he slept you know, with the other men there on the porch. And so some say, well, it's because he, he, did, he couldn't make it home. He was just too drunk, right? I don't think that was the reason why. I don't. 
I think it's because it was real. You can, you know, thank God you guys don't get drunk anymore. If you do, you need to repent right now, right? But man, you can you find out who a person really is when they get drunk. Huh. Some of you guys here got you drunk. You know what you start doing? You start flirting with other women. Because that's the real you. That's the real you. I don't know. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to simplify things. I don't want to oversimplify things. I remember when my dad used to get drunk and how he used to start flirting with other girls. I remember when I got drunk before I was a Christian. When Uriah got drunk. That's who he really was. Is that who you really are? I pray it is. Apparently, Uriah was real. And so what do you do? (laughs) Kill him. And so verse 14. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. And so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. And then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Tebez? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, this is all you got to say, when the king starts freaking out, this is all you have to say, Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. And then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, i got to make sure I say this, Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And there's a lot of lessons, and we're going to kind of come back and kind of break down a few things. It's not just sexual sin, it's just sin, period, you know. But, you know, here we see the integrity of Uriah, the audacity of David. He sends him with his own death warrant. I mean, there is no question this guy's not going to, Unseal it. Job receives it. Doesn't even blink an eye. Another wrong. Another wrong. 
You know, it's wrong for Bathsheba to give in to the king. It's wrong for Joab to give in to the king. Remember, you have overseers, but if they tell you to sin, you don't have to. Joab doesn't blink an eye. He sends him in the front and a few other nameless guys. Nameless to us, but nameful to God. They just die because of David's sin. Why? Why did all this have to happen? You know, I don't think it was because David wanted Bathsheba so much. I don't really think that was the main reason. You know, we do hear of frequent murders among men and women due to these terrible love triangles. Don't you you guys get sick of that type of news, you know? And that happens. But I don't think that was the real reason David did this, you know, to bring Bathsheba to himself. I don't. I, I think for David, the real reason was because everyone thought he was such a godly man. Everyone thought he was such a godly man and he didn't want to tarnish that image. It was an element of lust, yes. It was an irreverence for life, that's true. But the primary problem with David was pride. Pride. He had reached the top, you know, materially, musically, militarily, and he thought he had reached that climax spiritually. And for him, he just couldn't handle the thought of everyone knowing how he'd slipped and stumbled and sinned and really wasn't the greatest man of all. C.S. Lewis said, The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads every other vice. It is the complete antithesis to God. You know, and maybe you're here today and you're struggling in sin and you are just, you're just hiding it and you're just covering it up and you, you would never tell anyone and you would never confess your sins to one another like the Bible says in the book of James chapter 5, verse 16. Your greatest you know, scripture, your, your favorite passage and the one that comforts your heart the most is Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, where you cover your sins. You cover your sins, just as long as, as people don't really know. But Proverbs that tells us that if you cover your sins, you're not going to prosper. When was the last time you confessed your sins to somebody? When? Oh, generically. Yeah, that's a safe place to be. When was the last time you humbled yourself and you broke down and you told somebody what you did? Because you need help. Because you need to be accountable. David just could not bring himself to that place. And it's an important place for us to be. Yes, it would have been hard to confess to Uriah what he did. But it ended up being harder not confessing. It ended up being infinitely harder. And his whole life would now take a spiral down. And his family would suffer and die because that's what sin does. And you don't confess your sins to anybody. Well, Manny, we're not Catholics anymore. Well, thank God, you know, we don't have to confess our sins to a priest. I remember those days. That was weird, huh? 
He kneeled down. You got the little confessional there, and the guy's just kind of—he's like kicking back on his side. He's like half asleep, you know. And you tell him all your sins, all say ten Hail Marys and an Alleluia or whatever, and you, you know you go away. You know we don't do that. It's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. But you should still be confessing your sins. Tell your wife. Tell your husband. Tell your friend. Oh, but but then. The fact that I'm perfect. That was David's problem. And that can be your problem as well. You know, another considerable element as you look at this story, at this season of David's life, was his ability to lie. And Alistair Begg also brought this up. And, and and I just remember when he said it, it was just so true. I was like, wow, it's so true. You, you know, because a liar, if you come to a point of being a liar, and you have the freedom to lie, then you can do anything. You can do anything. A liar can do anything, because they just lie about it. Right? And, and I, all you got to do is lie about it, man. But if you have it in your heart where you, can, you can't lie, and I pray that you have a really strong conviction that you just can't lie, then you watch what you do, huh? You really do. But David here, he had come to that place. Look at verse 25. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. You know, these are guys that died, man. These are guys that spilt their blood for his kingdom and under his monarchy, under his leadership. They got killed. And he's like, it's no big deal. Devours one as much as another. Right? Later we're going to see that sword goes to David's own house and it will never leave. You know, when we think of our life and our obedience to God, you got to know that it affects other people. And you got to know the damage it does when we choose to disobey. You know, if it was just me, that's a different story. If it was just me. But my sin radically affects other people. And if it was just you, that's a different story, but don't you realize that your sin radically affects other people to the point of maybe even causing them to die? And you're just going to continue to live in your sin? And the sword devours one as well as another, you know, that's just kind of the way the ball bounces. We can't have that. We learn that here, that we can't. Little did David know he was speaking this to himself. And so he just know he he keeps up his image and you know he's like, you know, I'm the greatest guy, I'm the perfect man. And uh and Uriah, your your husband died, but I tell you what, I'll take care of you. And so you finish up your morning and you come and I'll take care of you and your child. And everybody's going to think 
that I'm the greatest guy. I'm going to please everybody. They're going to trip out on me. And so what ends up happening in verse 27, those, those, those words right there, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That word displeased is a real interesting word. It means to tremble. It means to quiver. It's like God saw that whole thing And he was just trembling. He was just quivering. It's the first time God's mentioned in this whole thing. And that's the worst, you know, that's the worst thing of all. It broke God's heart. And that's what it does first. And then it aroused God's anger. God was displeased. You guys, let me just share with you, man, this is the one thing you don't want to do. You know, I think many of us are focused on pleasing a particular person or a group of people, and oftentimes ourselves, but we really need to come to that place in our walk where we are focused with laser-like focus, laser-like focus, to be people who live to please God. David here in this whole thing, he did the one thing you don't want to do. At this juncture in his life, David wasn't, you know, you know, in this place where, oh, it's so cool. It's all come down. And I think now David is thinking, he's, I really think he's thinking that he's gotten away with it. He probably felt a tinge of guilt. He may have offered up a few pretty prayers and some superficial sacrifices. But now, you know, now it's time to move on, right? Uh, him and Bathsheba, they're going to move on. And, and the kingdom of Israel, they're going to move on. We put it behind us. Hold on a second there, king. There's a king of kings. And it may take nine months. It may take nine years. But we got to deal with it. We got to deal with it. You don't want to confess? We're going to deal with it. And so what happens in verse 1? Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children, and ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a, a daughter to him. Nathan comes in and is probably like a lot of people there, more than likely, comes in and he kind of brings this situation to David. In those days, it was common for a person to have a pet lamb. Uh, you know how some people are with their pets, right? Um, how they treat them better than people. Have you guys ever met someone like that? Uh, you get so attached. And you guys know people, they take their pets with them everywhere. 
They go in the car. They go to the store. We've had people, some people bring their pets to church, try to tell us that they were saved. And we're like, (laughs) can you imagine that? Seriously, you know, you got your pet there and you're eating and your plate, hey, Chip, go ahead and have some, you know, and he's licking up, eating, eating from the same plate, drinking from the same cup, you know. And then you see them there and then you can visualize them holding them and some of some people, you know, they sleep on their beds and they got their little dog right there sleeping at the foot of the bed. Have you guys ever seen that? And then first thing in the morning the dog comes and wakes, hey, time to wake up and they lick them and oh mijo. And they're really that's what this was, man. It was a real, real tight relationship. And you know, I don't think that you know I think that, you know, basically Nathan's saying there was something special, something really, really special here, which you know, it kind of, and you might want to downplay it, but it, it might, it might mean something about the relationship that Uriah had with his wife. Never think about that, but, you know, Nathan paints this picture. This rich man, many innumerable sheep. This poor man, he has one personal, one personal sheep. And so he says in verse 4, And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wafering man who had come to him, But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And and the cat was out of the bag, huh? The rat was out of the bag. It had been somewhere about nine months. There were a few who knew. But finally the time comes. Nathan doesn't come on his own volition. He's commissioned by the Lord. And with wisdom and courage, uh, he dared you know, to be a friend to David. And he presents the scenario to him, a simple parable that paralleled exactly what he had just done to Uriah. And it's so cool because it worked you know, beautifully. David saw the severity of such a sin so clearly that he not only demanded the fourfold restitution according to the law in Exodus 22, but he pronounced the necessity of such a man to suffer execution. At which point Nathan then plunged the declarative dagger in the bullseye of David's heart. And he said, you're the man. Crazy, huh? You know, when you look at that whole story there and just, you know, how just things lingered. And when you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, you kind of get an idea of what David was going through all that time when he hadn't come clean with the Lord, how it was just eating away at his bones. That was tearing him up inside. And so, you know, what would David do? What would David do? 
And there's options at this point. I don't know if you've ever been there, but there's options. You can justify it. You can say, well, you know what? She was bathing there and, uh, you know, she shouldn't have been doing that. Or, or you can maybe make excuses of it. I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, you can just little, little words here. As the king, you know, you could say, dude, ki- kill him. Get this guy out of here. Does he know who I am? I'm the king of Israel, anointed by Samuel. I I killed Goliath. I've led this country to victory. Who does he think he is? What ends up happening? Nathan even does more. He says, thus says the Lord in verse 7. The Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that would have been too little, I also would have, I circled that in my Bible, would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. And, you know, we're going to see that God's going to forgive him. You know, and, you know, God will forgive us of our sins, but, you know, there's consequences even of forgiven sin. And it's interesting the way that God does it so creatively. You know, he, it's, he, he's, he's, he's amazing, you know, the way that the Lord just, man, takes this and makes it so ironic. You know, Nathan says, I don't get it, man. God has done so much for you. When that right there, to be honest with you, should be sufficient reason not to sin, not to fall. They say that 40% of all married men will fall into adultery. And I wonder how many men are lusting and looking at pornography. I mean, six Sex sins in the church are rampant. It's just crazy. And the women, they're creeping up. They're following the guys just as much. It's getting worse. You know, but, but if you would just stop to think of what God has done for you, you know, in the cross, in your life. I mean, that's what the way Nathan starts it off. The Lord has done so much for you. Verse 7, verse 8a and, and then, then, you know, if you want to, you can go then to then, well, then God will discipline you if, you if you sin. So those, again, the love of God and the fear of God, the love of God, what God has done for us. And then the fear of God, what God will do to us, you know, if we mess around. I pray you guys would die with integrity. I pray for myself that one day when my life is over, that I will have not violated my covenant with my wife. And if, you know, that's the main message here. You know, if you're here today, man, die with integrity. 
Don't fall into sexual sin as a single person or a married person. Be a man of integrity, a woman of integrity, because look at what God has done for you. And if you do choose to sin, look at what will happen. He says, I would have done so much more. Do you realize what you forfeit when you feed the flesh? What, that 20, 30 minutes of pleasure? You forfeit the dreams that God had for you. The aspirations within his agenda. I would have done so much more, he says in verse 8b. But David despised the commandments of the Lord. He despised the Lord himself. He thought little of him. He committed adultery and murder. He even killed you know, Uriah with the sword of the Ammonites. I mean, this is an awful, ugly way to do it. I mean, just... Uh, David made light of the sword in chapter 11, verse 25. Now we read, it's, it's going to come to his house, to his family. I mean, you know, and that's just so awful to think that it would come to my family. My sin would boomerang and come back to me. And I think that there's like a motive there. It'll move you like, oh, Lord, I don't want my sins to, to, you know, to do this to my children. But it, it, it did. And we see in David's, we're going to see it just all falls down here. You know, David's still a man after God's own heart. But what ends up happening is his daughter's raped by his her brother, and then that brother's killed by another brother, and then that brother comes and and he opposes David and he dies at Anijah. It's just a crazy thing. Fourfold? Fourfold? Yeah, four sons end up dying because of David's sin. He'd experience adversity from his own house, that'd be Absalom. And it's interesting. He says, you slept with your dear soldier's wife. Your dear son is going to sleep with your wives. You did it secretly. Your adversary will do this openly. Remember that rooftop where you were walking and you were looking and you were beholding Bathsheba? Remember that rooftop? He's going to take all your wives and he's going to sleep with all your wives on that same rooftop where you were checking out Bathsheba. He's going to sleep with all your wives there before the sun, before all of Israel. And God has this way of just making it. Just come back. All those times where he spoke to us, and we wouldn't listen. And so Nathan tells them these terrible things. What would you do? Now remember, it's not just Nathan and David. There's no doubt. There are people watching. There are people listening. David... In verse 13, he said to Nathan, All he can say, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, sometimes I talk to people and they're having problems and they're having issues. And it's just, I don't want to sound insensitive, but it's like, I will. And you guys can beat me up afterwards, but know that I love you. Yada, 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 yada. Excuses. Cover-ups. Three words. Say it. It's the only hope you have. I have.
Saul, and this is where him and David were different, Saul would come up with these elaborate excuses. And, and, and you know, there's, there's always reasons. But remember, a reason is an excuse for stuff with a lie, man. I mean, there's always reasons. Don't get me wrong. I know. I know there's reasons. I understand. You know, your wife's not all that. Your husband's not all that. You know, I understand. I know that. There's always. But if you want, you know, to, to come where you need to be, this is what you need to say. Don't worry about your reputation. It's the character that counts. That's what differentiated him from Saul. He confesses. In the original Hebrew language, David's statement, I have sinned against the Lord, is only two words. These two words and the heart they reflect. Think about it. Two words. Two words. Show the fundamental difference between David and Saul. You guys, confession doesn't need to be a long, you know, you know, mantra One guy said the greatest griefs are not always the most verbal. Saul confessed his sin more largely, but less effectually. Kyle and Dallet said the words are very few, but that is a good sign of a thoroughly broken spirit. There is no excuse, no hiding, no concealment of the sin. There is no searching for a loophole, no pretext put forward, no human weakness pleaded. He acknowledged his guilt openly, candidly, and without any denial of truth. Remember what we read earlier? He who covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And so what ends up happening? Nathan said to David in verse 13, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who is born to you shall surely die. And then Nathan, he just splits. <laughs> and he departed to his house. When God forgives you, it doesn't necessarily mean that there will be no ramifications. Uh, Psalm 99, 8, it says, You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. And so there will be consequences, you know, and um, let the Lord take care of the consequences. You know, don't be overwhelmed with them. You know, it's interesting. One person said, David, uh, he believed the words of Nathan, you are the man. If you don't believe that, like if there's something going on in your life, I'm not the man. I'm not the man. You're not going to go anywhere. But he believed that, you are the man. So that he, went, he was also then able to believe the Lord's put your sins away. But if you don't believe you're the man, then as far as your sins being put away, you're, probably, you're not going to be able to believe it because you, you, it won't be true. Don't think that, oh, okay, well, life's over now. You know, God still used David and we know that he finished pretty good. It was never the same. And so I think in looking at this story right here for me, you know, the forgiveness of sins, you guys, some people think, well, since God is such a forgiver of sins, then I'll, I'm cool, you know, I'll just kind of take it lightly. The other day I read this passage and it just really, it just, I don't know, kind of like another light open 
is brighter. It says in Psalm 130 verse 4, there is forgiveness with you. There is forgiveness with you. Yahoo! That you may be feared. See? There's not forgiveness with him so we can just do whatever, man. No, there's forgiveness with him that that he may be feared. And that's my prayer, you guys. You know, when we read, and again, I know God can put a life back together and God's grace is amazing. You know, but on this side and for the rest of our lives looking forward, I pray that we would learn from this amazing, amazing chapter. And I'll just read this to you. I know some of you here are you're kind of done you know, writing notes because I already closed my Bible. But let me just share a few things with you in closing. Idleness is the devil's workshop. Idleness is the devil's workshop. If it's time for you to kick back, crack a jack, you know what, I'm not going to be in the battle anymore, then get ready because the devil's coming, man. That's what happened with David. Secondly, the second look is what kills. The second look is what kills, okay? You don't have the right to check out chicks. Some guys think they do. They, I can check her out as long as I don't, you know, make or bust a move or whatever. No, you can't, man. It'll mess you up. Thirdly, it can happen to anyone. If it can happen to David, it can happen to anyone, right? Because David was a man after God's own heart. We need to take heed. If we think we stand, lest we fall. Fourthly, women have a responsibility as well. And, you know, men too. Don't show up too much of your muscles, I guess. I don't know. Women have a responsibility. There's a difference between being attractive and being seductive. Dress modestly. Live modestly. Respect the boundaries, right? Next, pay attention to the hurdles and look for the way out of temptation. David had to, he had to, you know, jump over a whole bunch of hurdles that God was putting in his way. And God puts them there so that we have the way out of sin. You ladies, here's another thing. You don't have to give in, even to the king. And later, Joab didn't have to give in. So remember, we have that order of submission, but not if they tie you to sin. Another lesson is don't even try to cover your sin. It's futile, and it will make things worse. You guys remember that? When you were kids, you remember that you told a lie, and the only way you can maintain it is what? Telling another lie and a bigger lie before you know it. Man, you had the worst imagination ever, man. So don't even try. Just, boom, come clean. This is what I did. Next, if necessary, be wise, caring, prayerful, and confrontational as a friend. Like Nathan. So when you see someone in sin, you know, don't just, you know, boom, bow up to them. It's got to be God sending you at the right time in a wise way, courageous and caring, but confrontational. Thank God for Nathan. Huh. And then the last thing is there is forgiveness. And I pray that you guys would know that. There is forgiveness. Don't let the enemy kill you or beat you up or think that your life is over. It's not over. That's just something that God will decide. For David, he to whom much is given, much more is required. You know, some of you here, maybe you were younger when things happened or whatever. You know, let the Lord take care of the consequences. Let's learn from this and fear God. But you know what? Go forward in your life. From this point forward, you, you, stay, you stay pure. God will forgive you. But never forget, there are... There are consequences, right? Always. Whatever a man sows, that he will also what? Reap. Change David's life. He was never the same. I remember one time, and I'll close with this.
One of the young guys from the young adults, you know, he asked me a question about Proverbs 6.26. It says, For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And so, you know, the, the beautiful girl or whatever, she's fine, she's good looking. And this guy is reduced to a crust of bread. And, and he asked me, what does that mean? What does that mean? This is what it means. Totally, totally thrash David's life. Because some people, they like crust. They're like, I like crust, you know. When I was a kid, I used to rip off the crust. Did you guys ever do this? Rip off the crust and you just eat that white stuff. You throw it away. That's kind of what ends up happening. You know, a harlot or whatever it is, that girl, that guy, they'll thrash your life. Respect your boundaries. Guard your hearts. Learn this lesson, you guys. God is good and he's gracious. And right now, right here today, he doesn't want just to be a Thursday, come, go, communion, boom, I'm out of here. The same as I came in. I think all of us here, and I know myself included, there, there's, there's ways, there's, there's ways that we got to say, Lord, I am the man. And I haven't been praying like I should. I haven't been fasting like I should. I haven't been whatever, you know, treating my wife, treating my husband, treating my kids, living the life of radical Christianity the way that I should. Agape love. And so the Lord says, you know what? Let's deal with that today. Let's get really, really radical. As we have communion, searching our own hearts, making it simple, maybe even just saying to the Lord, I have sinned. I have sinned. So God can then wash us and cleanse us and allow us to move on. Read Psalm 32 tonight, Psalm 51. And, and just really let it minister to you. Okay? Father, we thank you for allowing us to study your word together. And as we now have a time of communion, Lord, I pray, Lord, for my own life. There are many areas, Lord, that I need to surrender to you. I pray I would learn from the lesson today, Lord. I don't want to cover my sin. Lord, I want to confess and forsake And I pray that I would just really be able to connect the dots of living a life, Lord, in light of what we study today. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, wherever they are, whatever they're going through, whatever struggles that they might have. God, I pray that as we stop and think of your love, of your cross, of Calvary, Lord, that somehow you would encourage them today, Lord. Holy Spirit, open our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.